south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 342, covering the week of January 30th through February 3rd, 2023. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab and Facebook pages, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us that email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. Again, free of charge just for giving us that email address. And of course, once you're on our email list, then we can communicate with you more effectively. We can let you know about forthcoming webinars, all of our programs, our Daily Dose of Dixie, which is our articles that appear on the website, which of course I cover on this podcast. So it's an invaluable resource for us to maintain a relationship with you. So please give us that email address and don't unsubscribe when you get our stuff because that is the best way for us to reach you. Also, if you're at abbevilleinstitute.org, you can give us a donation. We exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like the podcast, the website, the articles, the conferences, the webinars, all the things we do, the videos that we do at YouTube, um, then consider a tax deductible donation to the full extent of the law. It is uh, by your donations that we continue to do all these things. They are Most of what we do is free to you, but of course, we can't do it without some money on the back end. So if you do have a little money to give, please consider that donation. We'll take a monthly donation, an annual donation, a one-time donation, anything you can do to help support our mission. Just a reminder, we do have our conference coming up in April, April 13th through 16th, 2023 at Callaway Gardens in beautiful Pine Mountain, Georgia. It is a real resort. We're going to have a great time there, but information about that is available on our website. Time is running out, though. There's just a little over a month left to secure your seat and also reserve your hotel room. So people have asked about other hotel rooms in the area. Uh, Pine Mountain is kind of by itself. There isn't really a whole lot around. So if you want to drive a good distance, you can stay somewhere else. But staying at the resort is the most ideal situation for you because you're going to be right there. And of course, we are going to have about half a day in the gardens. We're looking to try to do something with that. So there's, it's going to be a grand time, and you're going to want to be at the resort and, of course, be around the people that are going to be there. So, again, that information is available on our website. Also, we have another Zoom webinar coming up in March. We will have some information about that short, shortly. So um, that's going to be another grand time. And, of course, we have some other things, too. Abbeville Academy, where you can get uh, some of the old webinars. We had abbevilleacademy.org. You can purchase some of those old webinars there. Um, also, if you want to get our mobile app, it is free of charge to you. Just simply go to wherever you get your mobile apps, your app store, download the Abbeville Institute app, again, free of charge, and you can have the Institute on the go. So lots of, of great stuff out there for the Institute that we want you to take advantage of um, and use. I mean, we are uh, an organization, an educational organization dedicated to getting material out there on a regular basis. And this podcast, of course, is part of that. So if you like the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Also, all our articles. Give it that five-star review wherever you can uh, wherever you can for podcasts. Leave a text review where you can and let people know you love the, the podcast as well. That helps more people see it. And when you're at YouTube, you can comment there or you can click on that little heart button under the videos, the super thanks button, which, of course, can help fund the Institute there as well. So There's all kinds of great ways to support the Institute financially. Just give us moral support, share things around. All that's painless and free of charge. And, of course, that does help expand our mission. So 
let's talk about the material for the week. Uh, one of the things we often focus on at this at this organization is, of course, history. I mean, we, we are uh, an organization that does a lot with history. And uh, Clyde Wilson wrote a piece this week on history. Um, and the title is A Morsel of Genuine History. It's a, it's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. And look, we had on our... Our, we had our webinar a couple of weeks ago, uh, July 28th, uh, I'm sorry, January 20th, just a, I'm sorry, earlier this week, January 28th, um, with uh, Adam Tate. And we talked about history and how really what we're doing now is the same thing we were doing back in the 1860s or the early 1800s. And it, it is a battle over history, the meaning of American history. We have two different meanings of American history. One is the Lincolnian version of American history, and Don Livingston has talked a lot about this on YouTube. And the other is the Jeffersonian meaning of American history. Now, you do have people that would say Lincoln was trying to align himself with Jefferson, but as we know, that would not necessarily work very well when you look at Jefferson's long career. Uh, but regardless, we have what you could say is a New England version and a Southern version of American history. The New England version, of course, has the foundation of American history at Plymouth and then the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and then everything works from there. And you had people coming from New England and other parts of the United States that were certainly dedicated to ensuring that this became the dominant version of American history. Even into the 19th century, this became the primary objective of people like Charles Sumner, who uh, wanted to make America New England again. And then to counter that, you had the southern version of American history, which begins essentially at North Carolina, Roanoke Colony, and Jamestown in 1607, and moves forward from there. And that part of American history becomes the prominent story of America. And that's what we're doing with the 1607 Project, which you will see more of in the future. And again, if you want to help do something for the Institute, that project can only exist by your generous contributions. So you're going to see more of that. But that's one thing we're trying to do with the 1607 project. We have a website established for that, 1607project.com. And uh, this is a, an important part of creating an anchor for American history. If America begins in New England, we have a dramatically different America than if America begins in Virginia. Now, one thing I find fascinating about this is that, you know, really the 1619 Project does say that America begins in Virginia, but it's all the bad stuff. The good stuff would begin somewhere else. And this is essentially what we start seeing in the mainstream historical profession. And even beyond that, amateur historians, political pundits, there are, there's a good America and there's a bad America. The good America tends to be anywhere north of the Mason-Dixon, and the bad America tends to be anything south of the Mason-Dixon. All the heroes or Northerners, all the villains are Southerners, or anyone who leans Southern or has Southern viewpoints. And this is the case, whether you're talking about mainstream conservatives, whether you're talking about progressive leftists, it doesn't matter. These people all have the same view. And see, if you look at the 1619 Project that way, you'll find that Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, has this kind of view. We have, we have this proposition, right, that all men are created equal. And then from that, we have the distortion of that proposition because of the South. Now, of course, it doesn't matter that a Southerner wrote that, Thomas Jefferson. Um, and Jefferson's life and career are complex. He said, and, and this is what I asked Adam Tate on Saturday when we had on the 28th, when we had that 
that webinar, I said, look, do you think these people really believe this stuff in the 18th century? And he answered unequivocally, yes, they did. But then you start seeing some changes over time. And Jefferson, for example, in 1776 was much different than Jefferson in 1783 or Jefferson in 1800 or Jefferson in 1810. He changed over time. You could say they became more conservative throughout his life. You can say that Jefferson uh, became more realistic throughout his life. It doesn't really matter what you say, but Jefferson was much more of an ideologue in 1776 than he was just even seven or eight years later. Uh, maybe the war had changed him. Maybe some of the experiences he had had changed him. But any, either way, it doesn't really matter why he changed. He did. He still had generally the same views, but he had softened in how those views would be implemented, and he had changed some of that. So um, Jefferson is, uh, again, the symbol of the South in many ways. As Don Livingston and I have talked about this. He said, other than religion, Jefferson really embodies everything the South was when it comes to political thought, when it comes to the structure of American government, when it comes to um, philosophy, when it comes to you know education, you think about all these things. Jefferson really did speak for that. And look, people like John C. Calhoun loved Thomas Jefferson. They did. Jefferson was, in many ways, his political hero. And you know, Calhoun supped with with uh, with Jefferson at one point when he was a young man before Jefferson died. And so, I mean, there is a clear, distinct lineage to that. John, John Tyler, you know, John Tyler's father was very good friends with Thomas Jefferson. And of course, John Tyler had meals with Jefferson as well, with his father. So you have this really interesting connection. What I find fascinating about that story is John Tyler's grandson is still alive. There's somebody walking the earth today that's only, you know, two generations removed from a man that actually ate uh, a meal with Thomas Jefferson. It's amazing when you think about that. Uh, but <laughs> regardless, um, Jefferson is still current, and we do have some work this week by uh, Mark Andrew Holacek on Jefferson. He does write for us on Jefferson, but we had this piece by Clyde Wilson, A Morsel of Genuine History, and it talks about the meaning and importance of history. Get back to this idea of history wars. If you look at, and, and Adam Tate nicely set this up, we have two speeches in 1861, one by Jefferson Davis, one by Abraham Lincoln, and essentially they're talking about the same thing, but there are different interpretations of that same thing, and that would be the American founding. And what we have in America now are two different interpretations, not only of the founding, but also of American history from the 1860s forward. And so really what we have is a battle of memory. What memory are we going to, to have in America about the American past? Is it going to be a, a good memory? Is it going to be a bad memory? Is it going to be a memory that we want to erase? or a memory that we want to emulate. The memory that's trying to be erased, of course, is the southern side of things. It's the easiest one to erase because supposedly it's all the bad stuff. But as Clyde points out, the point of history is not to judge. The point of history is to understand. And that's why this piece is so good if you look at the last paragraph of the piece. The point of history is to understand. And we spend so much time judging and so much time uh, editorializing when it comes to history that we forget about understanding. There's not all, the, the good guys aren't always the good guys and the bad guys aren't always the bad guys. In fact, there's a lot of you know, gray area in all of these things. And if the historian really does seek to understand, then their history will be better. And what I find fascinating about that particular idea 
or the, the point of history to understand. You see it in modern history books in a way that is shocking, striking in some ways. Now, this is not uncommon. Let me say this. Again, Don Livingston and I are having a conversation about this years back, a few years back. And he talked about, um, there was a, a book that he had read back in the, in the uh, I guess it was the 18th century. And the author of this particular book said, look, if anyone finds any offense with this, I don't mean anything. He wrote that in the preface, the introduction. I don't mean any of it. So what you have now in the historical profession are people that write books that they go to understand, to seek to understand the subject, and the material points them in a direction, and they have to apologize for this because they understand that the direction the material took them is not going to be accepted by the mainstream academic establishment. And I find that to be extremely fascinating. I'll give you two examples of that. There was a book by Cynthia Nicoletti on secession and Jefferson Davis, The Trial of Jefferson Davis. And what you find in that book is that she kind of sides with Jefferson Davis. The evidence really does point in Davis's direction. The defense had the stronger case. But she apologizes for this because that doesn't fit a narrative that would allow her to get a tenured track position, few as they are. And um, she is concerned, you can tell, that if she writes a book that would be seen as overtly pro-Jefferson Davis, then she would never get a tenure track job. That's a sad commentary. Now, she doesn't say that, but this is essentially what she's doing. There's another book by John Thornton I've mentioned on this podcast before about Africa and the importance of Africa and the slave trade. And he does nearly the exact same thing in the introduction. This is from Oxford University Press. It's a big, I mean, big academic press. And he says, look, I've been surprised. This book has been out for a long time, so he's got tenure. But the way he has to qualify what he says, I've, he says, I've, I've been around for a long time and I didn't want this book to be taken the wrong way. In other words, I didn't want the book to become what he thought would be used by you know, white supremacists or whoever else you wanted to say that would say that this book can, can, uh, conclusively proves that you know, white people were not responsible for slavery. He just followed the evidence. And I, I think it's sad that people have to say this. You provide a book and you provide evidence. And what people do with it is they're a business. Uh, you know, what people do with a, a legacy of a speech or a political figure, a public figure, a historical figure is their business. Um, your job as a historian is just to simply put down and seek to understand what happened. Uh, what was, you know, why was Jefferson Davis thinking the way that he was? And you try to understand that and you tell the story. Why was Abraham Lincoln thinking the way that he was? You try to understand that and you tell the story. You have to have a sympathetic part of your being to do that, which I don't think that modern historians have because they're not really historians, they're activists. And an activist is not going to have a sympathetic bone in their body for someone who does not adhere to their political and social and economic worldview. It just can't happen. Someone who's an honest historian would actually have a sympathetic eye for people they don't particularly like. Um, and that would be the case with even people that would be, you know, you would consider villains. In our case, it would be people like Abraham Lincoln or people like Charles Sumner. Um, people that were doing some things that uh, you might say are a little bit obnoxious or dangerous, or in Lincoln's case, you know, from our position, starting a war. But 
if you seek to understand and your evidence goes in a direction that you don't like, then of course uh, you still provide that evidence. I give you another example of how people take the evidence that goes in a direction they don't like and still try to work against it. And that would be this book, you know, Searching for Black Confederates by uh, Kevin Levin. And he clearly says in this book that when the evidence doesn't support what he says, he tries to editorialize and come up with some reason why it may not. And he has no evidence of any of these things. He's just editorializing at that point. That's not really history. That's activism. And that's what makes that book so poor. And you find that in much of what mainstream academic historians do. There's actually a new book out, and I'll talk about this on my own podcast in the future. It's, uh, um, it's uh, you know something like The Truth and Lies of History, or I can't remember the title, but one of the authors is Kevin Cruz. The other is, an, is another Princeton historian. And essentially the entire book is a collection of essays that seek to dispel people like us. That somehow the Abbeville Institute or people that write for the Institute or people that would think like what we do are the dominant forces in American history. What these people are doing, they're gaslighting you in a lot of ways because they're the ones who are the dominant forces in American history. And everything they say in that book is what's being taught in public schools and private schools and colleges and universities across the United States. They're fighting a straw man, a boogeyman. But yet, somehow, this book becomes this definitive case. Look at all these people that they're taking down. Look at the, And they even make the point in the introduction of the book, it's an attack on, say, Donald Trump and anyone who likes Donald Trump. It's a polemic. It's a polemic. It's just like the Charles Dew book, Apostles of Disunion. The entire book is designed as a polemic. And so when you have history history, but really polemics, you don't really have history anymore because you're not seeking to understand. You're seeking to condemn. You're, you're basically creating a court case, a legal brief against the other side, trying to marshal enough evidence to make your point, and it doesn't matter if other things go against it. That's irrelevant. What you have to do is prove your point in a court of law, the court of public opinion, that you're right and they're wrong. This is not what history is supposed to do. So I like this piece by Clyde because he explains that in this piece, and of course he's talking about the war and this is a complex thing and people that try to reduce it to nothing, to one issue or try to reduce it to, uh, you know, to, to simple caricatures are doing America a disservice in that. And for years we didn't have that. We had people that were interested in real history and doing real work and showing the complexities and the multifaceted points of all these things and actually bringing out these complexities in history. But when you get activists masquerading as historians, they stop doing as much of that. Now, it doesn't mean they don't all do it. But again, even when they don't do it, they try to, to uh, write it off as, oh, this is an aberration. Uh, this wasn't really correct. These people were lying. Whatever it is, they try to come up with some way to excuse their editorializing as valid and these people as invalid. These people as uh, telling lies, telling stories, telling, fa telling fairy tales, when the real fairy tales are these leftist activists. So this is great. And you can see where all this leads. You can see where it all leads with the piece by Forrest Marion on uh, West Point and the removal from of Lee and other Confederate symbols from West Point. Because you see, the history war has to go after the low-hanging fruit. 
These people are the evil others in American society, and they must be done away with. And so, again, this piece by Forrest Marion is just another example of all the things we've done on this show, this podcast, the website, about this particular issue. And this gets back to our understanding of American history. You see, these people were all doing things that were un-American. What they believed in was un-American. The belief in self-determination, the belief in independence, political independence, that's un-American. Many of these people, not the majority, not, not the, uh, the vast majority, but a small minority, were slave owners. Now, you can say that Southerners across the, across the South uh, were around slavery most of their lives, uh, even if they didn't own slaves. So uh, they were certainly aware of the institution and the, and the social structure and other things that it created. But however, to say the war is reduced to slavery and slavery alone is a political a political position, not a historical position. It's a political position. And why would people want that political position? Well, it gives you power. You see, slavery has always been about power in one way or another, whether it's promoting it, whether it's uh, trying to end it. It's always about political power or a political motivation within that process. So taking all this stuff down is a political move. It's not a historical move. It's a political move. And there should be no other way to describe it. Looking at the Arlington Confederate Monument, which we also had a nice piece on uh, this week by Gene Kaiser, um, taking that down is a political move. There's no historical value in taking that down. There's no social value in taking that down. There's political value in taking that down. Ty Sigley writing his ridiculous book, Robert E. Lee and Me, was a political move. As Clyde pointed out last week, it's like you know Joe Biden writing a book entitled Julius Caesar and Me. I mean, it, it doesn't even make any sense. Robert E. Lee wouldn't have cared about Ty Sigley. But Ty Sigley cares about Robert E. Lee. And I had somebody email me, a colleague, and say, look, the word on the street is that Ty Sigley was uh, you know, fully invested in, in uh, being pro-Confederate, pro-Lee, and then... Um, he had a change of heart. And he actually talks about that in the book. It's kind of a mea culpa or, you know, kind of a confessional. He has sinned before you, my Lord, and now he has to go and say his penance by writing this book and going around and uh, getting involved with all the woke lefties. And it's like he's doing his penance. I was so wrong. This is my 10 Hail Marys, you know, my 10 Our Fathers, whatever it is. Uh, this is. This is him doing what he has to do to ensure that he says his proper act of contrition, and that's the book. And it's really ridiculous. It's dopey. Um, I mean, stupid would be a good way for it. But this is what he's done, and he's done it because he thinks, again, there's a political motivation here. If he can do these things, well, American politics will get better. We'll have less vitriol, less division, etc., etc. I don't think that's going to be the case at all. I don't think a statute Robert E. Lee or a Confederate veteran or a Confederate hero is causing any division in the American polity. That stuff was already there. So that's that piece was important. And then Gene Kaiser's piece, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, the, it's titled the 518. It's about the 518 men, Confederates, who were buried in the section, the Confederate section of Arlington. And of course, there's four men buried at the base 
of the Arlington Monument, making it their literal headstone. There's a little tiny headstone, but that monument is their headstone. One of them being, of course, Moses Ezekiel, who was the man that sculpted it. So to take this down is to disturb a gravestone, just to disturb a grave, a grave site, just like the left doesn't care about that. We're going to dig up A.P. Hill. We're going to dig up Nathan Bedford Forrest. Who cares about digging people up? They don't care. It doesn't matter to them. These people aren't even heroes. They're not even really Americans. They're subhuman. You look at the way Southerners are described in movies. Uh, they're subhuman. They're awful. They have no redeeming qualities whatsoever. So this 518, it gives you a list of all the 518 Confederates buried in that section. Um, it's a fascinating list. It really is to go through it. But all those pieces were fantastic. And then, of course, we wrapped up the week uh, with a couple of interesting pieces. I mentioned the one by Holacek earlier on Jefferson and the promulgation of ideas. Jefferson was an idea man. And I wrote something years ago. We are all Jeffersonians for the Abbeville Institute. And how anybody can find anything they want in Thomas Jefferson. If you want to find a position, you can find it. Jefferson probably articulated that position one time or another in his life. Um, same thing with Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin has a quote for just about everything. But Jefferson certainly did write a lot about ideas. And would that make Jefferson an ideologue? I would say that he wasn't. He wasn't an ideologue, particularly later in his life. Maybe a little earlier in his life, he was much more idealistic. But as he became older, he... he certainly grew more conservative, and all that ideology kind of, you know, vanished. Um, Jefferson became much more pragmatic and much more of a realist. And if you read Kevin Gutzman's book on Thomas Jefferson, uh, you kind of get that impression. Uh, Jefferson is a difficult man to write about because there's so much stuff. And not just that, he said so many different things to so many different people that it's hard to get a read on Thomas Jefferson at times. But uh, I think that Holocheck has done a great job here in talking about patents and ideas and Jefferson as Secretary of State and the hard worker that Jefferson was behind the scenes. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, Richard Weaver wrote, ideas have consequences. Sometimes you could wish that people didn't operate on ideas because ideas become dangerous, um, particularly ideas of the progressive left. They are certainly dangerous. And then we wrapped up the week with a little piece entitled The True South, and it's about a television short program that's on during football, college football. And, of course, you're in the South. You're going to be around college football. You can't, you can't deny that it's going to be on. It's going to be on all the time. People love college football in the South. And I think primarily because for a long time there weren't any NFL teams. There wasn't any professional football to speak of, there were different periods where you had some of it, but to speak of in the South outside of Florida. So nothing in Alabama or Mississippi or, you know, now we have, of course, we have the Atlanta Falcons, the Tennessee Titans. Tennessee didn't have a team for a long time. Uh, you've, got, you've got teams in Dallas and New Orleans. But when it comes to real loyalty in, in the South, it is, you know, Auburn, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, Clemson, Florida, Florida State, LSU, uh, you know, these are the programs that people in Tennessee, these are the programs that people go out and they become attached to. And so college football is a big business in the South. And uh, this little piece talks about a, a, something that comes out and is shown during college football time. It's actually produced by John T. Edge. John T. Edge 
is an interesting fellow. His book, he wrote a book entitled The Pot Liquor Papers, which sounds great. You get in there, and it's a lot of social activism. John T. Edge is a leftist. What I find fascinating about that is that John T. Edge essentially was, there was a coup attempt against John C. Edge for the Southern Foodway Alliance because they thought that Edge was too white and not receptive enough to Southern food and Southern ways of thinking to do this for a magazine or in any case, you know, because it's part of a magazine. In any case, you shouldn't have been able to do this at all. Uh, but uh, the the piece gets into how beautiful this this these uh, travel journals are of uh, of the South. You know, Edge. There were some calls for Edge to resign at one point, um, and I mean, I don't watch the show, but uh, I read some of his book, The Pot Liquor Papers. It's really not bad. Um, so this is something that's uh, you know we look at. Uh, people in in the historical profession and what they're trying to do, um, and when they apologize for something in that profession, you know they've done they they've done an unspeakable crime in the profession. That is, they have taken their sources seriously and they've told you what they think. And it doesn't really matter what they think; it matters what your sources think. That's the important thing. Oftentimes we get, well, I'm working on this person, and they become part of your life. In this case. You know, if that happens and you're researching someone like John C. Calhoun, which Robert Elder said, you know, he spent way too much time with Calhoun. Uh, maybe it happens uh, with uh, Northern abolitionists or uh, somebody else. But certainly you become very close to those people. And so people like Cynthia Nicoletti have to apologize because they kind of saw where Jefferson Davis is coming from. And that would make them into a neo-Confederate. I mean, it's just complete stupidity. But that's where we are in 2023. And... Um, you know, again, I find all this fascinating uh, because will it be this way in two years, three years, four years? Or will it be worse with some of this stuff? I don't know. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Abbeville Institute, the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day. Good day.